The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Money Answers Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answers Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answers Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Gavin Graham. He is the founder and president of Graham Investment Strategy and is the author of a new book called Investing in Frontier Markets, Opportunity, Risk, and Role in an Investment Portfolio. Welcome to the show, Gavin. Uh, Good to be here, Jordan. So let's just start off with an overall definition of frontier markets compared to emerging markets and what people might be more familiar with, which would be developed markets. Well, in essence, uh, the short answer is frontier markets are all the markets that are not in the developed market world index um, or the emerging market index. So they are the less developed emerging markets. Okay, and, and what is the long-term case that people would want to invest in frontier markets with the, the volatile nature of the uh, stock market these days? Well, uh, one shouldn't c- confuse volatility with risk because while it's very true that uh, the frontier markets, like other emerging markets, tend to go up and down a lot, um, at the same time, they don't move in the same direction as the developed markets or, interestingly, even the more developed emerging markets like Brazil or China or India. So by putting a little bit of frontier markets into your international equity portfolio, because they zig when the other stuff is zagging, if one can put it uh, briefly, then you'll actually reduce the overall volatility of your portfolio because you have an element within it, in this case, the frontier markets, that aren't moving in the same direction at the same time as the more developed markets. I think the other major reason why, uh, leaving aside the volatility aspect for a moment, is that we believe the frontier markets are where the emerging markets were a dozen or 15 years ago, and they have the possibility of giving you the same excellent absolute returns that the major emerging markets did over the last decade. What kind of levels of liquidity are available in the frontier markets today? Is it getting better? It's getting better, but again, even if you take uh, you know, the, the major stocks in the frontier markets and put them all together, it would represent less than 1% of the total stock market capitalization, while the emerging markets are about a third of the total world stock market capitalization. So they're still very small, illiquid, inefficient. So... For all of these reasons, we suggest in our book, Investing in Frontier Markets, that you know, this is one of those kids don't try this at home style investments. It's really an area where you'd want to have a uh, fund manager who knows the, the, uh, the stocks, knows what the liquidity conditions are like, has got all the uh, various brokerage accounts set up and a custodian bank that's reliable and let them do the heavy lifting for you. One of the amazing things about the frontier markets is a lot of these comp- the countries used to be, in s- some cases actually still are, uh, quite communist. I mean, Vietnam as an example. Uh, you know, yep. you've got uh, places that are kind of... Kazakhstan, uh, yes. Laos, and <laughs> Cambodia. Absolutely. But again, um, if one looks at China, for example, um, that's still officially a communist country, rather like Vietnam. And yet, you know, there's a very strong capitalist ethic. I think it's fair to say that with the exception of one or two members of the awkward squad like North Korea or Cuba, most communist regimes, even if they're still officially communist like Vietnam, um, have recognized that if they're going to actually remain in power, they need to deliver improvements in living standards. And therefore, they're actually prepared to allow economic freedom Uh, So the Vietnamese stock market, for example, has been going for over 20 years, and it's one of the longer-standing sort of frontier markets and better-developed frontier markets. 
Now, you have, a, in one of your early chapters in the book, ways to measure the economies of these various countries uh, that would then help you decide whether they should reinvest or not. The first one is uh, GDP. Can you yep. look at the GDP in the same way you can with the United States or Europe, or is there a different way of looking at it? No, it's pretty much the same, although obviously, the uh, first of all, the ability to measure it may not be as, uh, as good as it is in the more developed economies. And secondly, a lot of these economies have a large part of their population still in the countryside. One of the other measures we include is sort of urbanization, what percentage of the population lives in towns or cities. And for a large number of these countries, particularly uh, Africa and uh, the South Asian markets like Pakistan and Bangladesh and Sri Lanka or Vietnam, it's well over uh, you know, half the population, in some cases two-thirds or more, is still working in the countryside, which is not really a cash economy. In essence, it's subsistence agricultural or a little bit above that, and therefore GDP may reflect what the government's able to measure. And again, we, we took the, these numbers, that they're all sort of publicly available from places like the World Bank and the United Nations, um, but they may not actually represent the totality of the economy. Nonetheless, it's still a fairly useful rule of thumb, at least in terms of estimating relative size of the economy. And then you also look at income distribution, which is uh, called the Gini Index. What does that stand yeah. for, and how, how should one look at that, uh, whether uh, to evaluate uh, investing in a particular country? Well, um, I believe uh, that it actually stands for gross income uh, distribution, but in essence what uh, the, um, uh, what's been done is to look at what the distribution would be if everybody had exactly the same income and that's sort of one and then if, if Bill Gates had all the money and nobody else had any money at all and that would be 100 and where do countries rank along that, um, that, that sort of uh, distribution so for example uh, the Scandinavian economies or uh, the Netherlands or Belgium in Europe where you've got fairly high and progressive tax rates, um, general social security, fairly high levels of, uh, of income, but it, it's fairly evenly distributed. Their score would be around 25. Um, so the, the U.S. is somewhere sort of around 38 or 40. And then you get uh, over 50, which is where a number of these economies fall. Interestingly, the most unequal country in terms of income distribution is actually South Africa, where in essence what you've had is uh, the end of apartheid. You, you ended the rule of the white minority, but in essence you've replaced that with a well-connected black minority, essentially members of the, uh, the ruling party and uh, people associated with them. So you have a, a large number of fairly poor people and uh, a small number of pretty well-off people. And again, it's not an invaluable, not an infallible guide, but if you have fairly unincome, unequal distribution of income, you have a fairly high level of corruption, and we've got another index in there, which is not the corruption index, it's, it's uh, the corruption perception index, which is put together by a, an organization called Transparency International. In essence, they ask businesses how difficult they find it to do business, uh, what the level of um, you know, sort of bribery or corruption they perceive as being associated with various countries. If you put a, a couple of those measures together, um, you may find countries which are likely to have social unrest. Um, and in fact, interestingly enough, uh, some of the Arab countries where you had the Arab Spring a couple of years ago were countries that didn't score particularly well on income distribution or corruption. And therefore, once um, uh, unrest gathers momentum, there's not a lot of support for the ruling, uh, the ruling party, the ruling regime. So in general, you're saying it's better not to invest in countries where there's a high income disparity and there's a lot of corruption. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I mean that, that's, that sounds a very sort of motherhood and apple pie type of statement, but it, it is interesting to observe that um, in general... Uh, you will find higher levels of political unrest. Uh, you may find... I mean, again, South Africa has by far the biggest stock market in the whole of Africa. It's got uh, a lot of world-class companies. Uh, but at the same time, you still do have a fairly high degree of uh, social unrest. You've had the, the, the strikes in the mining industry. Um, and a, a number of uh, observers whose opinions we respect 
are you know indicating that they would be a little cautious about the longer term future for something for a country like South Africa, which on the face of it, with its natural resources and well-developed stock market, should be a very obvious place to be looking. So, in general, it does, it's not a reason for not investing. And, in fact, a number of the more promising countries like Vietnam or Bangladesh uh, uh, actually don't score especially well, but their scores have been improving. So, it, it, again, it's a relative judgment, but if you are, you shouldn't be put off from investing you know, if they have um, bad scores on these levels, but you should certainly invest with caution. Very good. We're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of the Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Gavin Graham. He's the founder of Graham Investment Strategy and the author of a new book called Investing in Frontier Markets, Opportunity, Risk, and Role in an Investment Portfolio. We'll be back after this. Always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Business owners, do you run your business or does your business run you? Put yourself on the road to success by tuning in to Success Unchained with hosts Anthony and Julie McGloin. At last, discover how to overcome your biggest challenges, take control of your business, and achieve the results you've always dreamed of. Find out how with our resident master business coach and world-class guest experts. Transform the nine key areas of your business and unchain your true potential. Tune in Mondays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Think of the world... 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. If you want to know about investing in emerging and frontier markets, or if you have experience in this field but still need to know more, tune in to Emerging and Frontier Markets Investing with Gavin Graham. Gavin explores news, current trends, and insights about both categories of investing. His guest experts, along with his own knowledge, will help you stay above the line when it comes to growth potential, whether in funds or equities. He will look at what to invest in and avoid. Tune in to Emerging and Frontier Markets Investing with Gavin Graham every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Gavin Graham. Uh, he's the founder and president at Graham Investment Strategy in Britain. He has come out with a new book called Investing in Frontier Markets, Opportunity, Risk, and Role in an Investment Portfolio. Welcome back to the show, Gavin. We're Good to be here, Jordan. We're going to do a bit of a world tour here uh, of the different frontier markets. And let's start with uh, the most populous region, which is Asia. Um, and starting there with the uh, the largest economies there, which would be, and let's take them one at a time, uh, Bangladesh. Now, there's been a lot of news about the the uh, garment factories and so on, the clothing factories have been, uh, fallen down and all that. What, what is the economic view of Bangladesh, and what would be some good opportunities to invest there? Well, Bangladesh is one of those, uh, the only occasion it gets in the newspapers, it seems to be bad news, whether it's floods and typhoons or political 
strife and one of the uh, original founders of the country from its in- war of independence over 40 years ago has just been found guilty of war crimes by the Supreme Court and condemned to death, although it's likely the appeal process will, ru- will rumble on for years. And as you said, uh, the, the collapse of the garment factory earlier this year and the death of over a thousand workers uh, seemed to be an unremitting drumbeat of bad news. Yet, despite it all, Bangladesh continues to um, drive along at around 6 7% uh, GDP growth per year. It's becoming a major exporting center for garments particularly and uh, shoes and low-end electricals because of its labor cost advantage to China. And one of the issues that uh, we, we touched on in the book is that the frontier markets are where the emerging markets were a dozen or 15 years ago, partially because of the success of the emerging market has meant that their wage rates have gone up quite a lot. And if you're in low-value-added areas like textiles or garments or shoes or toys or low-end electronics, the cost of labor is a very, very big portion of the total cost. So it's no longer competitive for uh, people in southern China to make a lot of the stuff they used to. Bangladesh is one of the major beneficiaries in terms of particularly garments and textiles. And so you've got companies like H&M, you've got companies like Primark, which is one of the UK's major clothing chains. You've got um, Gildan, which is the largest Canadian manufacturer of T-shirts and underwear and socks, all having large operations in Bangladesh. And those might be some of the, um, the companies which would actually be major beneficiaries of what's happening in Bangladesh because in terms of actual Bangladesh stocks themselves, there, there are none that are actually uh, readily available to an international investor. Uh, there is a Bangladesh ETF, um, which is done by Deutsche Bank, and the difficulty with exchange-traded funds for emerging markets like the frontier markets is they tend to be very dominated by uh, four or five stocks. So you may not get the diversification you think you're getting when you buy an ETF, but there is a, a Bangladesh ETF available um, from Deutsche Bank. And at the same time, also, some of those major garment exporters, um, some of the uh, companies like H&M and Gildan uh, and Primark that are manufacturing in Bangladesh are obviously benefiting from Bangladesh's very competitive labor costs. Okay, so you would plant by the people, uh, the com- companies using Bangladeshi workers as opposed to the Bangladeshi companies directly. Okay, let's yeah, move on uh, to uh, yeah. to Pakistan, which is a similar situation to Bangladesh, I guess. It's got very low labor costs. What What is the it, economic it, outlook and what are some investment opportunities in Pakistan? Well, Pakistan is probably not as attractive, if only because of the political concerns. Um, obviously, everyone's very aware of the ongoing um, problems with the Taliban and the uh, Al-Qaeda and the northwest provinces of Pakistan where uh, they, they are based and uh, there is a, a fair degree of um, comment and suspicion that uh, some elements of the Pakistani um, forces are uh, sort of protecting them and giving them aid and succor. Uh, witness the discovery of um, uh, Osama bin Laden in a compound in Pakistan. And yet again, despite all of this, uh, the the economy continues to do relatively well. Democracy has returned with Nawaz Sharif, who was prime minister a dozen years ago and is now back as prime minister. Um, again, garments and uh, the low-end manufacturing are a major source of revenue for Pakistan. Uh, there are one or two um, companies like uh, Standard Chartered Bank in the UK, which is a major player in the emerging markets and frontier markets. It was uh, started in the 1860s uh, to to fund Chinese trade, a little little bit like Hong Kong and Shanghai Bank, but unlike Hong Kong and Shanghai Bank, HSBC Standard Chartered is stuck to emerging markets, so it's overwhelmingly uh, from Asia and to a certain extent Africa and the Middle East. It owns one of the biggest banks in Pakistan, and therefore um, it's uh, quite a good way of playing uh, the improvements in the Pakistan economy as well as a number of other emerging and frontier economies. Are there some ETFs for Pakistan? There's, an, there's a Deutsche Bank ETF for Pakistan as well, uh, although there it's even more concentrated than the one for Bangladesh, so that uh, the largest three holdings, if my memory serves me correctly, are getting on for 50% of the, uh, the ETF. Okay. And then Vietnam, you, you are more favorable towards. Uh, what are the prospects in Vietnam, and are there individual companies there, or would you play that through an ETF? 
there's actually some actively managed funds. Um, there's uh, actually uh, four um, funds, uh, including a, uh, a Cayman Island registered um, open-ended mutual fund, which is uh, which trades in the European markets, um, called uh, PXP Vietnam. Uh, but there are three closed-end uh, Vietnam country funds, which uh, one of which has been going for almost 20 years. Interestingly, uh, we mentioned the uh, benefits of the lower-cost uh, economies, the lower-wage economies, and Vietnam being right next door to southern China has actually been the beneficiary of a lot of um, manufacturing uh, employment moving out of Guangdong province in southern China across the border into Vietnam. So it's uh, got um, a major garment industry, um, coffee, uh, oil, uh, a number of raw materials. Um, there, again, um, it's difficult for uh, a foreign investor to directly access uh, Vietnam, but uh, the, uh, the country funds actually all have Vina milk, which is, as its name would suggest, the biggest dairy and food producer in the country, as by far the biggest holding. And um, so it's Vietnam... Uh, Enterprise Investment Limited, Vietnam Growth Fund, TXP, Vietnam Opportunities Fund. All of these are uh, based in um, the UK and listed in Ireland. But if you have a broker who can deal in European stocks, you'll be able to buy those. But again, it's one of those interesting situations where, despite the fact that the Vietnamese economy is sort of three, four times larger than it was when the oldest of these funds was launched in the mid-1990s, the returns you may have only been around 6% after a 2% management fee uh, because there have been some bumps along the road. So even though a country is growing fairly strongly uh, you know, at the country level, it doesn't necessarily mean the stock market is going to end up being uh, a marvelous investment because some of the com- companies in the stock exchange may well not be run for the benefit of maximizing profit. They're there to perform social tasks like employ people coming off the countryside into the cities. So you would stay away from uh, Vietnam, or you'd you'd put some in no, as, a, I mean, as a risk? No, uh, Vietnam, but partially because they've addressed some of the issues, such as um, bad lending within the banking system. A uh, new government came in, or a new uh, generation of communist leadership came in a couple of years ago, and has has moved to address some of the excesses that, that had built up in the system, including uh, excessive credit creation. So they devalued the dong. Which is the Vietnamese currency, to, which has obviously helped make their exports more uh, effective. And again, Vietnam is one of the few countries where you do actually have an actively managed method of investing. You've got uh, and some choice of funds. And then Sri Lanka is another one, which is kind of similar to Bangladesh and Pakistan. What is the investment outlook for Sri Lanka? Uh, well, Sri Lanka has probably um, a different case in that it's it's smaller. It's only about. 18, 19 million people as opposed to 150 and 170 million for Bangladesh and Pakistan and 95 million for Vietnam. But it's also three or four times as wealthy. And uh, it used to be one of the uh, wealthiest countries in Southeast Asia in the 1950s. And then both bad policy and secondly, the, the Tamil civil war with the, uh, the Tamil minority in the northern part of the island for the last 20 odd years have really held it back. That finished a couple of years ago with the um, successful uh, military uh, defeat of the Tamil Tigers, uh, the, the, uh, uh, the, the sort of breakaway government. And as a result, uh, some areas like tourism um, and uh, you know, export industries, uh, higher value export industries such as um, sort of uh, technology, uh, processing, back office and the like, um, are starting to look quite interesting. There is no direct means of it accessing uh, Sri Lanka at present, so it's one of those where um, you're looking at uh, maybe an, an Asian fund with some exposure to smaller countries might be uh, a way of getting some Sri Lankan exposure, but there's no direct exposure at present. Very good. Okay, we're going to take a break. We're going to continue our tour around the world, a little bit more in Asia and Africa. We're going to go all around the world in these different frontier markets. Uh, my guest this hour is Gavin Graham. Uh, he's founder and president of Graham Investment Strategy, based in uh, England, and his new book is called Investing in Frontier Markets. We'll be back after this.
stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790, 866-472-5790, Voice America Business Network. In sales, are you a lion or a vulture? Lions don't wait. They just go for it. Vultures hang around until the lions are finished and just pick up the scraps. How can you set yourself apart as a lion? Join the other aspiring sales lions and listen to Forget Patience, Let's Sell Something with host Ty Maynard. You'll learn the tips and strategies of top sales professionals. You'll gain more clients at a faster rate and at higher margins. If you're a sales professional, business owner, or executive, listen in every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Is your business model robust enough? In today's ever-changing business environment, people are working to transform themselves, their futures, and their business. Tune in to Business Reinvention with your host, Nancy Lynn. To stay ahead of the game in business, you have to constantly reinvent yourself and your organization. With Nancy's experience and that of her guest experts, you'll learn from stories of inspiration, innovation, and forward thinking. Listen for Business Reinvention, live every Monday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Business Channel. Whether the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Gavin Graham, founder and president of Graham Investment Strategy and author of the new book, Investing in Frontier Markets. Welcome back to the show, Gavin. Good to be here, Jordan. We're doing a quick tour around the world here. And in Asia, the two places that we haven't gotten to yet are Kazakhstan and Mongolia. Tell us briefly about the opportunities there and ways people can invest in them. Well, Kazakhstan is a major natural resource producer. And secondly, it's uh, ex-communist. It's probably fairest described it as an autocracy rather than a democracy, but it's actually been uh, relatively successful, partially because of its resources. And it has listed half a dozen of its major companies on the London Stock Exchange through what are called Global Depository Receipts, GDRs, which are similar to ADRs, American Depository Receipts. They're denominated in U.S. dollars. They're just listed in London rather than New York. So you can buy... Companies like uh, Kazmunai Gas, which is one of the major um, gas producers, as its name would suggest, uh, the, the uh, Kaz Telecom, um, Halleck Savings Bank. Um, so there are uh, uh, several um, uh, Kazakh uh, companies, and uh, they are ten, generally larger and um, uh, sort of uh, better connected, shall we put it that way, companies. Uh, not all necessarily been uh, successful. One of them, called Eurasian Natural Resources, was actually taken private after one of its major shareholders, which was a Kazakh uh, government-connected company, uh, put in a a bid, which was a fairly low bid, but in essence, uh, nobody else was going to attempt to bid against it. So um, the fact that they're listed in London and they have uh, audited accounts from the big four auditors doesn't necessarily mean they'll end up being great investments, but you do have that comfort factor of um, some transparency and better liquidity. And how about Mongolia, which is a pretty growing place, I think, right? It is. I mean, and the big uh, development in Mongolia is the Oyu Tolgoi uh, copper and gold development because it's only 200 miles from major Chinese um, cities, which obviously want to buy copper and are shipping it from all around the world. So shipping it from 200 miles away on a rail line from Mongolia is a pretty good idea. Rio Tinto is uh, the the big uh, UK international miner is the largest shareholder in uh, Oyu Tolgoi and Ivanhoe Mining, um, run by Robert Friedland, who discovered the uh, diamonds in Boise's Bay in Newfoundland uh, 15 years or so ago, is the uh, company which discovered the deposit and developed it. It still has a minority stake. But one of the more interesting ways to play it is actually um, a uh, 
company set up by a, a, a U.S. Uh, hedge fund manager called Harris Kidman, and he got a listing on the Vancouver uh, Venture Exchange, uh, sorry, the, the Canadian Venture Exchange, I should say, these days. It's Mongolia Growth Group, and the stock ticker is YAK, Y-A-K. But in essence, what he's been doing is buying up a large portion of the available property in the capital, Ulaanbaatar, because he said, you know, as with the uh, gold rush in 1849, some of the gold miners uh, actually made some money, but the people who made lots of money and very reliably were the people who sold them the picks and shovels. So owning property in the capital when there isn't a great deal of supply, when you've got a big new natural resource development that's going to add, you know, a third to the size of the economy over the next 10 years is a pretty good position to be in. So that's the company uh, based on, it's traded on the Vancouver uh, Canadian Exchange, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Very good. All right, let's move to Africa. Uh, Kind of give us an overall view of the economic situation in Africa. It seems quite a lot of turmoil all the time, but you think there are economic opportunities there as well? Absolutely. Um, Six of the ten fastest growing countries in the world over the last decade are African. Um, And partially that's because it's starting from a very low base, but if you're looking for very young populations, with you know, only 25-35% in the cities at the moment, then you've got, um, you know, Africa looks by far the best on, on that basis. So the biggest uh, uh, sub-Saharan African economy, apart from South Africa, which we've touched on already, is Nigeria, um, about 180 million people. Uh, again, always bad news coming out of there, whether it's Islamic terrorism or, uh, you know, violence against the oil companies in the Niger River Delta. But despite that, the economy continues to grow 7 8%. The uh, new democratic government is, is, seems to be relatively competent. And a number of their companies are actually listed on the London Stock Exchange. Uh, three or four of their banks, for example, are um, in, including Venice uh, Bank and uh, FBN First Bank of Nigeria um, because their balance sheets have been cleaned up, uh, growing uh, consumer spending, and therefore people getting their first credit card, their first bank account, their first car loan, uh, doing very well. So uh, Nigeria tends to be a major feature. There are a couple of U.S. Uh, open-end mutual funds, one is the Nile Pan-Africa Fund, the other one is the Commonwealth Africa Fund. Both of them have big exposures in Nigeria, as well as a couple of other ex-British uh, colonies in Kenya and Ghana, uh, Kenya, you've just had the bad news about the uh, attack on the shopping mall in Nairobi by um, Islamic terrorists. Uh, but the reason they were doing so was that Kenya was helping keep order in uh, Somalia, which is its next-door neighbor. Uh, in the meantime, the Kenyan economy continues to do fairly well. Natural resources, banking, telecommunications, uh, and Ghana is a big natural resource story, both gold its original name was the Gold Coast, so it's got some world-class gold mines, but also offshore oil and gas. So, again, it's the ETFs and the broad-based funds is the best way to play Africa, you're saying? Absolutely. Um, I say there are some individual African companies, including some South African companies like uh, South African breweries, uh, Miller Brewing, SAB Miller, uh, which gets 75% of its earnings from emerging markets, which is listed in London. Um, old mutual insurance, uh, likewise. But if you're looking for pure sub-Saharan African plays, then uh, doing the uh, the the FN mutual funds is, is the way to go. How about the Middle East, which has all this money? Yet it seems political. Some some of it's stable, some of it's in, unstable. What about investing in the Middle East? Well, uh, there's um, uh, T. Rowe Price has a uh, Africa and Middle East fund, uh, FN fund. Uh, there are a number of Middle East funds in based out of Europe, uh, but it, it's really a sort of tale of two cities, as it were, in that you've got the Arab, the uncertainty caused by the Arab Spring, the overthrow of long-standing regimes in Egypt, Libya, Tunisia, the civil war in Syria, and on the other hand, you have the Gulf uh, the Emirates, uh, so Qatar, United Arab Emirates, which includes Abu Dhabi and Dubai, Kuwait, and they've actually been attracting a lot of money uh, as safe havens because they have been relatively stable or amongst the wealthiest countries in the world. Uh, they're, inhab- they're, they're not particularly populous and therefore the, the money, uh, it, there's lots of money available to ensure that everybody is, is happy with things. Saudi Arabia would actually fall into that category as well, except that it doesn't allow foreigners to actually buy shares directly in uh, Saudi Arabia. There are one or two people who, ha- uh, who have Saudi Arabian exposure but they do it through 
what are called participation certificates. So again, as I mentioned, there's a T-Rail Price has a, a, a sort of Middle East and Africa fund, um, and there are uh, a number of um, other uh, sort of uh, uh, funds, uh, global frontier funds, which have the Middle East as a major exposure. Uh, the um, iShares um, Frontier Markets ETF, which was launched about a year ago, actually has getting on for 60% of its assets in Kuwait, Qatar, and the United Arab Emirates because they are the biggest frontier stock markets by capitalization. And, and you think so that, that's a good place to sorry. invest those, the Gulf states? Is it based on the, your outlook for oil prices or is just their economies are getting beyond oil at this point in the Gulf states? Their, their economies are getting beyond oil in that, you know, um, so tourism, communications, ports, uh, telecoms, um, and the service business as well. But also, as noted, they are getting uh, this sort of face haven bid from people moving money out of other uh, Mideast economies like Egypt, for example, where the outlook's uh, rather uncertain and put either into these economies because they feel it's, uh, they are relatively stable and attractive. But also, obviously, um, there's um, other industries which are based upon uh, cheap energy. So aluminum is a, big, uh, is a big area that they're developing. And also the liquefied natural gas business, particularly for Qatar, where Shell is shipping large quantities of LNG to uh, energy-hungry countries around the world. All right, let's briefly skip to uh, Eastern Europe, which has uh, kind of had a, a capitalist renaissance, I guess you might say. So what is the outlook in, say, Bulgaria, Romania, and Ukraine? Well, it's uh, in terms of the underlying drivers for the frontier markets, which we were looking at in our book, we felt that young populations and uh, you know ones that were still largely in the countryside moving to cities were probably two of the most important factors. Uh, Eastern Europe is the exact opposite. They actually, none of these countries has a positive birth rate. They are very old populations. Their median age is sort of mid to, to high 30s, and they're very largely urban. So uh, um, no, on a secular basis, strategic basis, you wouldn't be particularly bullish on these countries. Uh, one or two of them are showing interesting signs of life. Uh, Romania, which is 22 million people, is... Uh, has a reasonable size stock market and the economy is doing okay. Slovakia, um, part of the old Czechoslovakia, is actually um, doing relatively well on the basis of steel and autos. So it's actually uh, got a relatively well-developed economy. The Ukraine is sort of the, uh, the country with lots of potential in terms of agriculture and natural resources, but unfortunately its governance, its political system is not great. And so even though the income disparity we talked about earlier is not that great. Um, it doesn't rank very well on the corruption perceptions index. And it's also, of course, right next door to Russia and Vladimir Putin, who tends to lean on them when he, it's, they're doing things he doesn't like, such as, for example, jacking up the price of the gas. They need to keep the economy going, even though the pipelines to Western Europe run through Ukraine. So um, Ukraine would probably rank somewhere near the bottom of the list in terms of attractiveness. U.S. global investors has an emerging Europe fund, which has been going for over a dozen years and has actually got a pretty decent long-term track record. So there are attractive economies within Eastern Europe. They tend to, tend to be more of the emerging market ones like Poland and the Czech Republic rather than the frontier ones. But you know, there are one or two interesting situations in the frontier markets. But generally, longer term, it's not a particularly attractive area because of its demography and uh, the political situation. Very good. We're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Gavin Graham, a founder and president of Graham Investment Strategy. His new book is called Investing in Frontier Markets, Opportunity, Risk, and Role in an Investment Portfolio. We're going to cover South America when we get back after this. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. How can we Americans realize our dreams to earn a living? How can you pursue your dream and make money as an owner or an employee? Learn how at The American Business Person, the online weekly radio talk show hosted by Rich Killian. 
Today's business leaders share how to succeed and what fails. If you own a new or established business or ever hope to, you must tune in. Join us every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Central, and noon Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel or listen on demand to our archived shows. Are you looking for innovative ideas on how to achieve your financial dreams? Tune in to Empirical Investing Radio every Thursday afternoon at 2 Pacific, 5 Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Join certified financial planners Ken Smith and Ethan Broga to learn how you can obtain financial success. You'll be entertained while you discover techniques to alleviate your financial concerns. Empirical Investing Radio every Thursday at 2 Pacific, 5 Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Gavin Graham, founder of Graham Investment Strategies based in England. Uh, His new book is called Investing in Frontier Markets. Welcome back to the show, Gavin. Good to be back, Jordan. Do you have a website people can find out more about you or the book that people should know about? Uh, if, if they go to uh, www.emergingfrontier.ca, then Very good. Uh, that, 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 that's got uh, details about the book um, and the Voice America uh, radio show that we've been doing for the last few months called Investing in uh, Emerging and Frontier Markets. Very good. Okay, uh, we have to uh, talk about Latin America, which has been growing pretty fast here. So we've got bigger economies like Argentina, Colombia, and Brazil, and some smaller ones like uh, Ecuador and Colombia. What would be your your favorites within uh, Latin America? Well, uh, Brazil sort of is, is in the established emerging market category, but Colombia is probably the one that looks most interesting. It's included in uh, emerging market indices, but it's also included in sort of emerging frontier indices, so it's on the cusp, as it were, uh, but 45 million people, um, uh, a successful political solution to a long-running uh, sort of guerrilla insurrection against FARC, the, uh, the sort of Marxist-backed Colombian guerrilla, has seen the economy do very well over the last decade or so, especially by comparison with its next-door neighbor, uh, Venezuela, where Hugo Chavez and the Bolivarian Re- Revolution has uh, not done the economy many favors. Um, there are also several um, uh, Colombian uh, ADRs like Ecopetrol, which is the largest oil and gas company, and Bank Colombia, which is just buying uh, Hong Kong and Shanghai Bank's Panama operations for a couple of billion dollars, which are both uh, listed ADRs in uh, New York. So you can actually buy some of the major companies. And there are a number of Canadian-listed um, resource companies that have been developing uh, energy and gold down in Colombia. Uh, Pacific Rubiales uh, is and uh, has just made a takeover bid for Petro Minerales in the last uh, week or so, $1.4 billion or thereabouts. Uh, and they, uh, Rubiales has been a very successful stock. How about Ecuador and Peru? Uh, Peru, uh, Ecuador is a little bit like uh, Venezuela in that uh, government has a tendency to uh, expropriate, nationalize, uh, or whatever when things go wrong. It's easier to blame the foreigners to, to actually address the underlying causes. And it's also a fairly small economy. Peru has done extremely well. Interestingly, uh, former Marxist Alan Garcia is now back as president and running a, a very uh, sort of small sea capitalist uh, regime. Um, so you have several uh, major uh, mining companies uh, which are listed in New York, which are doing well. Um, it's not as easy to get an exposure to the uh, domestic Peruvian economy. Uh, but interestingly, um, for uh, the, um, the uh, Latin American economies, the, one of the frontier market, uh, the global frontier market, ETS, actually has an 80% Latin American exposure. The Guggenheim 
uh, Frontier Index, and 50% of that is uh, of the of the fund is Chile, which is actually an emerging market, but it does have quite large weights in um, Colombia and Argentina and uh, Peru. So let's take a look at the overall class of uh, Frontier markets. What role should it play in a portfolio? Uh, if you're willing to take some risk, and what are some of the specific funds, both ETFs or op- um, open-end, actively managed funds that you would recommend for somebody who wants to dabble their toe in frontier markets? Well, I think, firstly, uh, as, as we noted at the beginning of the program, even though the individual markets are volatile, uh, because they don't move in, in line with each other, and particularly they don't move in line with developed or uh, major emerging markets, by putting a little bit of frontier markets into your international equity portfolio, now maybe 1% or 2% of the overall portfolio, 5% of the international portion, you will reduce the overall volatility of your portfolio, as well as having the opportunity of pretty decent returns. And then as far as the ways that you would play it, we would, and we, in the book, we very strongly recommend actively managed frontier, global frontier funds rather than ETFs. As we touched on earlier in the show, the two uh, frontier mark, global frontier market ETFs, the iShares one, which has been going for a year, has 60% in the Middle East. The Guggenheim one, which has been going for four or five years, has 80% in Latin America. So you're not actually getting a global fund. You're getting funds which happen to have big exposures to the markets uh, which have the most, uh, have the highest stock market capitalization or have the most ADRs. There are three uh, open-end global frontier markets funds that are still available to uh, North American investors. Uh, Templeton, which had the oldest and longest running, uh, which started in 2007, and that's run by Mark Mobius, like an emerging market fund, actually soft-closed their fund in June this year because they were getting so much money and they had over a billion in the North American version and getting on for two billion in the European version. But there's still the um, HSBC uh, Global Frontier Fund. There is the Harding Lovnir uh, Global uh, Frontier Emerging Markets Fund, and there's J.P. Morgan um, Frontier uh, Fund. So there's three open-end, actively managed global frontier funds. And interestingly, Jordan, despite the fact they all charge two percent plus management fees, they've all beaten the index after paying their quite high management fees because these aren't sort of efficient markets. They are relatively liquid, they are inefficient, and so a good active manager with research on the ground is able to add substantial value. What, what is the benchmark you should compare them to when uh, you have a global frontier-oriented fund? Well, there is the MSCI Frontier Markets Index, which has been going, again, since 2007. The difficulty is that that is you know, very much weighted towards the largest markets by market capitalization, so that means it's got a big Middle East weight, and that is uh, help hold it back. You can compare it to the emerging markets index, and actually um, the frontier markets have lagged the emerging markets since the financial crisis, uh, which means they're pretty good value. So you're paying uh, around sort of 11, 12 times next year's earnings uh, if you uh, look at the, uh, the markets, um, and you're getting a 4% plus dividend yield. So that, that makes them relatively attractive, both in terms of um, sort of underperformance against uh, the other alternative, which is the emerging markets, and compared to the developed markets. You have a chapter on why you think the developed markets are going to be unattractive at the present. So Canada, U.S., Europe, compared to the frontier markets, why uh, are those not looking that attractive going forward? I think it's really the reverse of the reasons we like frontier markets. Frontier markets, you've got young populations, um, you've got a rapidly growing workforce, you don't have much in the way of social security or pension expenditures, and the, the country's finances are in pretty decent shape, partially because they went through, a number of them went through some problems in the late 1990s, early 2000s, as opposed to the developed markets, whether it's North America, which is in probably the best shape of the major developed markets, but it's still not great. 
and Europe and Japan where you have uh, unattractive demographics, uh, aging populations, and lots and lots and lots of debt as a legacy of the financial crisis. And so if you were the Martian looking at it and ignoring the popular conceptions about, oh, these markets are volatile and politically dangerous and everything else, and said, what do you think, uh, you know, which countries do you think have got the best prospects for growth over the next 10 years, you would certainly say that the frontier markets look pretty attractive. As long as you're willing to take a risk. You say there's a, a difference between the media perception of these countries, the frontier countries, and the reality. I mean, we've been talking about bombs going off and political instability. How should you handle that as an investor, not to get wrapped up in the uh, media uh, coverage that often is very negative of the frontier yeah. markets? It is, and so the first of all, you really need a five-year time horizon, at least, preferably a decade, but at least a five-year time horizon. It's easier said than done, I know, but if you also have the actively managed global frontier fund, you've got the manager who knows what's going on around the world and can actually underweight regions or countries where the uh, the fundamentals are less attractive, where uh, you know the uh, there is some. Uh, you know, sort of weight behind the bad news stories you're hearing. Um, but a- again, it's also that really the only time these countries appear is when there's bad news like the attack on the shopping mall in Kenya. Uh, nobody, uh, you know, pointed out that Kenya has actually been one of the fastest growing countries in the world for the last 10 years that they've actually had after a, a fairly bitterly contested election sort of four or five years back, the most recent uh, you know, election went off relatively peacefully, uh, that the economy has been growing, that there have been major investments by multinationals who think it's worthwhile putting money in. Um, no, it's, it's the fact that you, you've got Somali terrorists and, uh, you know, uh, it, it obviously is a major blow to uh, Kenyan national pride, but the fact is in five years' time we'll look back and say um, it didn't derail the case for investment in Kenya. Very good. Well, it's been a fascinating look around the world. My guest this hour has been Gavin Graham, uh, president of Graham Investment Strategy. His book is called Investing in Frontier Markets, and it gives the web t- website to find out more is emergingfrontier.ca. Is that correct? That's correct. Very good. Well, thanks so much for being a guest on The Money Answer Show, Gavin. Not at all, Jordan. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about these, this, these really interesting markets. Thanks very much. And again, we'll be back uh, with another edition of the Money Answer Show next week. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and the Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 